Hello and welcome to episode four of Bombazo, the Scandinavian Spanish football podcast. It's the international break edition, I guess, sort of, though there was club football in Spain this weekend, just not uh, top flight men's football. So it feels like a natural point that we should start the pod on then this week to look back on what many people are billing as the first classical in the women's game in Spain. Um, but first, introductions. As always, I'm joined by Alexander Jonsson. How are you? I know that you've been busy playing some football. Yeah, actually played football for the first time in like three or four years or something like that this weekend. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. It was a, a charity match, uh, Vigo against Madrid with uh, journalists, actors and uh, and football players. Actually, I just played a match with someone who Jon Gudetti has played with. So that's something. How did it go? How did you get on? Um, yeah, that we don't have to talk too much about. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it went for, for not having played for so long. I think it went quite well. Um, I seem that the guys were impressed, so that's good. But uh, we lost. We were winning 2-1 in the last minutes, and then the Madrid people came up and scored two goals in the two last minutes. So that's not the best way to end it. But it was for charity, so that's the most important thing. Well, it could be worse. You could have lost 9-1. People do that? Yeah, exactly. Well, apparently one team does that. Uh, the team that had the Real Madrid badge on its shirt, but for all intents and purposes, is not Real Madrid. Uh, Barcelona against Tacon, where to begin? Um, I don't know about you, but I feel like with a game where the scoreline is so exaggerated as this one, it almost isn't worth analysing the actual details of the game itself because the golfing class is so obvious. But I've, I think the, the only simple thing we can just go through really quickly is how Jakobsen and Aslani did, and where you can say that there is is simply that because of their team lacking in the same quality in the rest of the team, it's difficult for them to actually perform uh, on a, the level that they normally can perform on. But Jakobsen still was, uh, I think, a part of the goal that the one goal yeah. that Takan scored. So they they weren't horrible, uh, but it's difficult for them to play when when everything isn't at the same level. Uh, it was quite interesting to see the, I mean, it's only social media as well, so we should always be wary, but the social media reaction from Real Madrid supporters to Tacon's performance, it seemed like most of them were along the line of thought that, well, Jakobsen was still really good. And if everyone was up to our standard, then maybe we would have gotten on better. They were slightly less kind of because of Arya Solani, but then again, I think it's a bit unfair to expect too much yeah. considering how the overall performance was. Um, the the point I kind of thought it would be important to focus on because there's been a little bit of debate on this in Spain is that the there's a lot of hype about the, the women's game in Spain just now, so it's natural that they're trying to find natural points of connection with an audience that, that people recognise. But... Um, you know, there was a, a clear attempt to, to big this up as the classical um, of the women's game and the build-up to the match. And I, I'm a little bit sceptical about that for a number of reasons because, well, first of all, the, the term classical itself, even in the men's game, as far as Barcelona and Real Madrid matches go, is still relatively new. It only kind of happened in the 2000s. Um, and that was a, a natural occurrence because by that point it had been established that Barca versus Madrid was really the definitive game in the the title race every year in Spain. Uh, before that, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are a little bit older and, and they're like, well, no, it was just a Madrid-Barca to us. That's what we called it, Madrid-Barca or Barca-Madrid. Um, the, the definitive game and the women's game in Spain for quite a while now has been Barcelona-Atleti. So if anything, I would argue the classical of the women's game is Barca-Atleti. And I feel like the rivalries should be something that are built up over years, not something that's sort of manufactured how do you feel about that what's your thoughts 
I completely agree with you. I think the the main match in in the women's league is Barça Atleti, and I think it's going to be that for a few more years at least. They they have the history. I think for the players, that's a match that really matters. And more than anything, it's the match that that is about the title. Because uh, even though Tacón is being bought by Real Madrid and is becoming Real Madrid, it will take time for them to get there because they are not not in quality. They are a newly promoted team. Mm. They're not in quality at the same level as Barcelona, as we saw this weekend, or as Atletico Madrid. So that is going to be the real, if you want to call it the Clásico, because the same thing, the, the thing with the word Clásico as well, is that it, it is as you say it goes down to what is the classic match yeah um and even though there is a history and rivalry between the clubs real madrid and fc barcelona and there always will which will make that 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 match i think turn into a rivalry and a quite heated one as time goes by and as real madrid grow uh, and manage to to make a team that can compete but at this moment the big match is atleti barcelona and Atleti Barcelona is always going to be the first real rivalry in Spanish mm-hmm. women's football. Uh, so they already have that ahead of, of the Real Madrid-Barcelona. And I think Barca fans see Atleti as their, their real opponents. I think it's more the fans who don't normally watch women's football. Yeah. Uh, who would call the Real Madrid or Tacón Barca the, the Clásico. Because those who've been following the Spanish women's football for a while, for them it's no doubt that the real match is Atleti-Barca. Atleti yep. But I think it's it's worth pointing out that because if we we look into the future, I, I definitely think that the Real Madrid, as Tacón is going to become Real Madrid-Barça, is going to become a stronger and stronger rivalry. Mm. The more, uh, because obviously Real Madrid is going to put a lot of money into to their women's team, not as much as they do to their men's team, but still they want to be able to compete with, with the Atletico Madrid and Barça, Atletic and so on. Uh, so that is going to be their goal. And when they reach the level where they can actually compete with them, the media is still going to keep on trying to portray this as the Clásico. They're going to do big things about that. Uh, and fans who are new fans to, to women's football will might be, be looking at it that way as well. So I think as it's going to go a lot quicker than it would had it been a rivalry between two clubs who uh, who's starting out at the same, same level, so to say. But because of the rivalry that you have in the clubs, that you have in the men's side, I think it's going to become a heated rivalry. But at this mm. point, it's not. And you could see that just by the scoreline, but also by how the players go into the match. I think for, for the Barca players, it's it's a huge difference going out to play against Tacón and go out to play against Atletico Madrid at this yep. point. Uh, and Barca still has some players on international duty as well, so they could argue they weren't actually even at full strength. Um, so, I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day or Madrid wasn't built in a day and it'll take some time. And yeah, I mean, I, I think we should all... It's safe to assume that this this is not the, the, the gap between these two teams as it will be in a few years, but for now, yeah, it's, it's, it's a long way off. There was a golfing class. Let's move on then to what we kind of touched on international football there, to men's international football. Yeah, and uh, we sent you, because I didn't want to be in the freezing cold, so we sent you to go to, <laughs> or because I want to be in Spain where it's warm. Uh, so yeah, we sent, uh, we sent you to the match to uh, Sweden, Norway, to see how our uh, our. Spanish Scandinavians 
or what to call them, are, are getting on our mainly our Real Sociedad guys, Adegord and uh, Alexander Isak. So let's have a listen to that. So we're at Friends Arena where the final score is Sweden 1, Norway 1, a result that doesn't really suit either teams particularly well, though maybe more so Norway because it means they stay in the hunt for second place. Uh, whereas if Sweden had won, they would have been five points of drift and you would think that would be a very big ask for the Norwegians. Uh, but what we're interested in is Alexander Isak and Martin Erdegaard, of course, both started, both had good games. Uh, and I always think that one of the interesting things we've seen players with their national teams is that more than with the club side, you get to observe more of their individual qualities because by nature of there not being a lot of training sessions, not a lot of in-depth tactics time, uh, it's much less of a team game, much more individualistic. Uh, we'll start with Isaac in the warm-up. He was the only Sweden player to hit the target with every one of his shots, which I thought was telling, so you could tell he was confident. Uh, and that showed in the match itself. Every time he got the ball, uh, something happened for Sweden, whether it was as a target man to bring it down, get his team up the pitch, or when he pulled wide, he dribbled, full on defenders, surprised them with some unexpected passes or crosses, some neat turns. Uh, his movement is really smart. He always gives the person on the ball an option and creates space in the right areas for them, which is a godsend for a team like Sweden. Uh, and he has that thing that true elite strikers have where he seems to be a second ahead of everyone else. Gets the ball and instantly does something with it. Doesn't need time to think, doesn't need time to process. He already has way before the ball got to him. He was involved in Sweden's equaliser where he brought down a really difficult ball into the box and then fed it on sharply, which ultimately resulted in ML first by scoring. Uh, and in general, it was a really good day at the office for him that shows a player who's grown a lot. Uh, one final point, when Jan Andersen took him off with just over 10 minutes to go, the majority of the Sweden fans booed, which is telling. Uh, so he's already a big fan favourite, already someone people know gives him something extra. And I think he'll take some confidence from this when he goes back to San Sebastián and keeps pushing to try and get that starting spot for Lariara, which he seems to be getting closer to. Uh, as for Erdegaard, he was undoubtedly Norway's best player on the pitch, and it's striking to see how much of a free role he's given with his national team way more so than in club football. Uh, and that says a lot when your coach is Lars Lagerwicks, who more often than not, he's a uh, more defensive-minded coach, but he can obviously say, just like everyone else, that this kid's talent is so high that you have to get him on the ball as much as possible, let him move for it and pick it up. Um, more often than not, Odegaard tended to be in central positions, but he could be as far forward as the most advanced man, or he could be as deep as right on top of Isaac, actually, somewhere I didn't expect him to see, but he was dropping all the way back down almost to like a midfield pivot role to try and help Norway build from the back when necessary. Uh, he's unbelievably good under pressure. I'm sure Real Sociedad fans will have noticed that already, but it really struck me because the first time I've had a chance to see him in the flesh, he just seems to have eyes on the back of his head. Uh, reminds me a bit of Chabi in that regard, not because they're necessarily similar players, but he's one of those few footballers who always knows exactly what's around him at all times, always knows exactly where the opponent is, and you can bet your house that he'll keep possession or he'll move it on if you give him the ball, so he's a, a real safe option for everyone at all times, regardless of the, the position on the pitch. And you can easily see how he may end up a true central midfielder one day, I think, because he has all the characteristics for that. And I do wonder if that may be Odegaard's best long-term hope of playing for Real Madrid, considering how their situation is in the midfield. Uh, and as well as a useful role for Real Sociedad in the future, perhaps. He's already playing more centrally there, but I wonder if he could end up deeper. Anyway, it was exactly what you would hope, based on how both players are getting on in Spain so far. Two very competent showings from two young footballers who certainly look like they're going to end up in a really high bracket indeed. All right, so yeah, that was my thoughts on the match in a temperate 14 degree Stockholm. And I mentioned it, but I thought it was really striking when Alexander Isak was taken off, how pretty much the entire Friends Arena kind of murmured and there was quite a lot of booze as well already, you know. 
um, the the Sweden fans really see this kid as someone that their team should be built around. And he was definitely the most dangerous player. And then Odegaard, um, I mean, I'm sure you'll be getting this feeling a lot this season, but I was really struck by how mature he was despite his age. Um, and his decision making is phenomenal. Uh, so I'm, I'm generally very optimistic about how these two players are going to do it. And they've got a huge game uh, coming up this weekend. Real Sociedad v Atletico is the toughest test, I think, of La Real yet. Um, and it'll be a tough, the toughest test of those two players. What do you expect from them going into the game, Alex? Well, it's also going to be their the first match at the finished or basically finished Anoeta, their first home mm. match of the season, which I'm planning to go on as well. Uh, go to as well so nice. that that is going to be a lot of fun so you have looked at them this weekend and i'm gonna look at them next yeah. weekend. that's how closely we're doing our um our coverage of, of our two scandinavian super talents no but i'm very very excited for uh for this season but also for this match and this is going to be the re- first real test for real Sociedad. of course they had uh, a really hard match against athletic club in the basque derby which they lost and where we saw uh few things that they really need to work with and how they are not really there yet in terms of, of building the team and, and how to play. But what we also saw in that match was that the one player who stood out the most and who was the only one who felt a little bit secure and, and actually being the one who moved the team forward and created something for it, as I said, it was Martin Odegaard. And, and as you were saying, He's been around for quite a while now just because he signed for Real Madrid when he was 16. And that's, if you didn't follow Norwegian football before, then that's when the world got up their eyes for him. So it already feels like he's much older than he is. Uh, And when he's playing, it definitely feels like that as well. And also, I think he's almost taking a little bit of a leader role on the pitch as well at uh, Real Sociedad, which is what they missed so much last season. Because they got some really talented players, but they don't really have the players who will step up uh, in the way that I think uh, Odegaard has already been doing this season. It's quite interesting what you said there, actually. It reminded me that in the press conference yesterday, Lars Slagerbeck said that he essentially wanted Odegaard to play the role that he's playing at Real Sociedad, um, which was more of a free role, but also very much a, a leadership role. I mean, he was expected to to create from any area of the pitch. He was a guy who who Norway were looking to solve problems. And I think as well for Real Sociedad in the, in the middle of the pitch, as far as the sort of central area of the pitch goes, I think he's going to be probably the main creative force. Um, and I, ex- I expected that he would be further forward uh, for them. But then when you look at their squad, it's, it makes sense, actually, that he's going to be fielded more centrally in general. Um, and I think this is going to be a huge test for him because Atletico Madrid are, are not the easiest team to play against. Definitely not a team that affords you a lot of space. And, you know, with the added factor that he is a Real Madrid player still, he'll be really ultra keen to impress. Big challenge for him, but also a big opportunity, I think, because obviously some people are going to be paying close attention. And already a massive game for the title race, considering Atletico are top and have a a fairly comfortable little gap. So, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to get you to report back from that. before we move on to more club football, in case you're wondering why we're not saying more about the international break for our other Scandinavians, well, the truth is there's not really that much to say. Vass and Brathwaite did appear for Denmark. Uh, Vass started the first game, Brathwaite started the second. Um, but no real major contributions from them. I guess we could note that Brathwaite started the more difficult of the two games for Denmark, which shows that his uh, performances for Leganes are not going unnoted. All right, so let's look briefly ahead to another one of the huge games this weekend that I, I think we have to talk about at least a bit. 
um, in our build-up. So Barcelona against Valencia. Um, I mean, you know, Alex, I know this is a game that Barca often have difficulty in. Even the better Barca sides have tended to drop points against Valencia at some point or another. Um, and I just get this small sensation that, that momentum is maybe going Valencia's way. The international breaks can make a difference because if a player comes back confident, that can have an impact. And Rodrigo scored twice during the break. Um, and he's tried to send a message in the media that he's happy at his club. It feels like very good timing for Valencia that he's hitting form. And, and in particular, when you consider that Barcelona's injury problems, Messi's fitness, still not guaranteed, Luis Suarez, a doubt. Uh, Nelson Semedo could miss out. What do you think? Do you think there's potential for the champions to drop some points? I think because it's Valencia, it's very difficult to say. <laughs> because Valencia is such a team that, as we said before, they're so unpredictable. One week they can be playing is horrible football and the next week they can be playing some of the best football that you will see all season um, and I think so far this season I've not been impressed at all with what they've been doing uh, I think they've had some uh, some quite bad matches but as you say momentum is key and confidence is key and I think especially with Valencia that is uh, a word very very important more than in, in other teams maybe is because you have such quality players and we see when they have the confidence what level they can play with and also how low they sink when they don't have that confidence yeah um, and just looking at last season for example uh i just one match that for me was a key match for valencia was when they came here to to vigo and played salsa at balaidos which for me is one of the worst football matches i've seen uh on such high level which is la liga uh ever live because both teams were horrible they played it was like, what, what is even going on? There was mistake after mistake. It was like they couldn't kick the ball, uh, basically. But it was that like watching Scotland. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. But that match en ended with, with Valencia winning after Rodrigo, of all players, went up and scored. And after that goal and after that win, uh, his confidence and Valencia's confidence changed. And yep. if you look at, uh, at their results last season, up until that game and after that game, it's like completely two completely different teams. Uh, so there, there why I think that what you are, are pointing out with Rodrigo having uh, had such a good international break and coming back confidence, I think that can make a bigger difference at Valencia than it would probably have done at any other club. Yeah, and he's such a huge player for them. And then also, on the other hand, you have the fact that Barca don't have momentum um, dropping points in Pamplona which is nothing to be ashamed of but wasn't ideal for them because it means they've already dropped points a couple of times um, but anyway we'll analyze all that in detail um, on next Monday's pod after the weekend's over and I guess we should also uh, talking about not particularly great international break for Real Madrid uh, Jovic got injured uh, after making a decent contribution via Real and he's a doubt for them so that's another issue for Zidane that, that's not exactly ideal for his situation at the moment um, so it looks like Eden Hazard is going to be tight and, and even if he's physically fit, he won't be match fit. Um, and Levante, I guess, well, maybe this is something we should say briefly, Alex. Uh, from people who maybe don't follow Spanish football in detail or maybe even who followed it a few years back, you look at Levante against Real Madrid and you think, oh, you know, that's not a bad game for Madrid. But as we found out last year at the Bernabeu, this Levante side are not to be taken lightly. They can take points from you if you're relaxed, if you're not on on your game and, and they seem to be able to rise to the occasion in these matches. Yeah, and it's also one of the things I love with La Liga. Like a team like Levante, especially if you look at last season, they could go and uh, and lose against the bottom teams, but then they go and win against Real Madrid. 
um, and have an incredible performance at the Bernabeu. Um, and that's what we've seen with like a lot of teams in La Liga. They just get, especially when they go up against these big teams and they feel like they have a chance. And I think this season, uh, as well as last season, with Barcelona and Real Madrid performing as they have done at the start of the season and seeing how other teams can take points for them, uh, for a team like like Levante, that that sparks something that this is possible, um, mm. and they instead of traveling to that match and it's like okay, it will go how it goes. This is not the matches we're going to win. They instead see an opportunity, um, and I think anyone would have uh, would like to to be able to beat Barcelona, Real Madrid, in, in their football career and be able to say you know one time I went to the Bernabeu and I won. Uh, so that is a huge huge motivation. Um, and it's not bad teams because if you play in La Liga, you're a pretty good team because yeah, it's a very difficult exactly. league to play in. Um, so while Real Madrid and Barcelona are struggling, they just make these other teams so much more hungrier and it makes it more, more, much more difficult for Barcelona and Real Madrid. So like, I think a match for them when they are on top, uh, not just because they're on top, but I think their opponents are probably not at the, playing as well as they will do if they know that there is a possibility to win against Barcelona or Real Madrid because then they go out in another way with another mindset to the matches. So yeah, um, and as said, we'll analyse all these matches in detail next week. Uh, a big news story from La Liga this week that we have to talk about because I know that we both uh, love to talk about this person in particular. Samuel Eto'o is retired. I must admit, I have to be honest, I wasn't really aware that Samuel Eto'o was still really playing. He kind of disappeared off my radar a little bit. Um, but the fact that he's now hung his, up his boots officially, it really hammered home, actually. It made me a little bit sad because, well, I, I'm sure you're going to say the same, but he's a player I love to watch and who, especially at his peak, uh, and I would say that his peak was at both Mallorca and Barcelona, he was an astounding footballer, as good as pretty much any centre-forward I've ever seen. And someone who, it strikes me that at least under, perhaps there's a younger generation that didn't get to see so much of him, that maybe even underrate him. I think those who saw him for, for the majority of the, the best of his career know that this guy was absolutely lethal at his best. He was incredible. And I think as a podcast talking about La Liga, we have to point out as well, a thing that I think not a lot of people know is that he's also a Leganes legend. Like if you go into their <laughs> website, you push legends, Samuel Eto'o is on there. And he's probably one of the biggest, he's probably the biggest name that ever played for Leganes and they are super yeah. proud of it. Uh, so it was when he was at Real Madrid, he was loaned out for a season to Leganes, who I don't know if they were in the second or third division back then, but further down in the lower divisions. Um, and he was at all, so he was brilliant. Uh, and that's before he went to Mallorca. And at Mallorca, I think that is uh, also a time where that is very, very underrated because he was incredible at Real Mallorca. And that's a time where uh, actually a team that could compete and could beat Barcelona and Real Madrid uh, in another way than the last the, yeah in the last few few years they've been down in in the lower divisions and they've just got back to La Liga and it's now a newly promoted team but for those who watched La Liga before knows that Real Mallorca was a, a big team and they were a big team a lot thanks to Samuel Eto'o because he was yep. scoring goals like crazy well I mean really Mallorca had no right doing what they did so they won the no. Copa del Rey uh, they finished third third in La Liga uh, and then they qualified for the Champions League and Eto'o was a huge part of that and yeah he scored against both Barcelona and Real Madrid when he was there um, he seemed to even at Mallorca he seemed to thrive against Real Madrid like he had a point to prove yeah no I think for is for the listeners who maybe don't followed Eto'o's career as much as we did or, or know as much about it we should point out that he actually came to to Spain 
to play for Real Madrid. I think he was 16 yeah. years old or something like that when when Real Madrid signed him. Uh, not an Odegaard deal, but for the for the youth teams. And he had a really, really bad time uh, at Real Madrid, which uh, is why he had that vendetta when he was playing for Mallorca against Real Madrid and later with Barca as well. Uh, he didn't feel like he was treated very good at, uh, at Real Madrid when he, he arrived and felt a little bit left out and, and things like that, which he's, he said later on. Uh, and then he never really got the chance at Real Madrid either, was loaned out to, to Leganes, he was at Espanyol, uh, and then he was loaned out to, to Mallorca, where he really, really proved a point, but Real Madrid still wasn't interested in, in taking him back. Uh, not until Barcelona came knocking and wanted to sign him, and there was this huge... Big, by then, Mallorca had bought him, I think, but Real Madrid was still owning a little bit of, bit of him, so the signing for him to go from Mallorca to Barcelona was actually quite... Uh, a long process because Real Madrid didn't want to agree to it. Exactly. There, there was a problem as well, I think, or Madrid have said anyway, that there was an issue that I think they didn't have any slots left for non-European passport holders at the time as well. So it, realistically, they, they maybe couldn't have brought him back. But as far as his time at Barca goes, um, for me, I, I think Eto'o kind of suffers a little bit from the fact that he played alongside Ronaldinho at his best and he played alongside Lionel Messi approaching his best and so because of that there's a tendency to maybe not appreciate just how exceptional Eto'o was as well um, but I think when you look at the whole of his career and you, you take into account the, the time at Mallorca but also his contribution to two Champions League winning Barcelona teams then you see just how exceptional this guy really was and also I'm absolutely convinced I don't think I'm the only person that getting rid of him was probably one of Pep Guardiola's oh. biggest mistakes because they would have won that Champions League again if they'd kept him. And that, 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 so that deal was absurd. Yeah, but let's get to that in a, in a little bit. I just want to say, uh, you said that he was suffered a bit for playing with Ronaldinho and, and Messi and so. For me, he suffered for playing with Henrik Larsson. Because <laughs> I, I was, no, no from, from my personal point of view, because I was a 12-year-old yep. who loved Henrik Larsson. He was my biggest idol. And I did not like Samuel Eto'o because Samuel Eto'o made sure that Henrik Larsson sat on the bench. <laughs> well, actually, there's an interesting um, point that, about that that I think we'll revisit because we're thinking about looking at um, what well, we will look at in his yeah. time at Barcelona. But in the beginning, it wasn't exactly clear-cut over who would start, yeah, exactly. whether it would be Eto'o or Larsson. And that, that was made worse because Eto'o was so good. Uh, so even though Larsson was playing great and scoring goals, Eto'o took that spot. And, and for a 12-year-old who loves Henrik Larsson, then you don't really like the other guy. Yeah. Uh, but that because he was so good, in the end, he turned out to become my favorite player. So when Larsson left Barcelona, Samuel Eto'o was my, was my player. So when, my first time I went to the Camp Nou when I was 14, I went directly to the shop and bought a Samuel Eto'o shirt. So, so that says a lot as well, I think, about just how good he was. And that's a t time when Ronaldinho was playing for Barca. Messi was breaking through at Barca. That's just about when he was 19, 20. Hmm. Uh, you had Deco, you had Xavi, who later would become a real big favorite of mine, Iniesta and so on. But Eto'o still, for me, stood out so much, despite him being the player that I disliked from the start. Yeah. That That's the shirt I would get when, when I got there. So I think that even though that's just my personal experience, yeah. I think that still points out how good this guy was. Well, it's actually an odd quirk that Eto's career at Barcelona has two kind of important Scandinavian moments in it. So there's the, the Henke Larsson thing and then there's the Ibrahimovic deal, which, I yeah. mean, just looking at it now when you're detached from it, 
Eto scored more than 30 goals that season. He scored in the Champions League final. I can't remember. I don't think in the end he was Pachichi. was Forlan maybe Pachichi. But he was, he was ultimately, he was up there. He was chasing it at the end of the season. I think he had 30 at least. But so the thing was that when Guardiola took over the Barcelona first team, so he did in the B team with Barta B, he did his first, which is why he felt so confident doing the first team. That he came in there and he saw that he's, I don't know exactly who these players were, but mainly the, the two best players in the Barcelona B team who were in the fourth division then. Uh, he felt like they were not good for the rest of the squad. And he went to a guy called Johan Cruyff. Um, and he said, I have a problem with these two guys. What do I do? And Cruyff just told him, get rid of them. And that's what he did. And it worked. So when he came up to the first team, that was the, one of the first things he did was Ronaldinho, Deco and Samuel Eto'o, they are out. And he went and told them and Deco and Ronaldinho left and Eto'o refused. Uh, so Eto'o instead made sure to stay for one more season and with the sole goal to prove Guardiola he was yeah. wrong. And that season... It was incredible. Uh, this is treble winning season for Barcelona. Um, yep. Or the, yeah, the treble. Yeah, it was the, it was the treble before the sixth double. Exactly. exactly. So the treble winning season and Eto'o just, as you said, scoring an insane amount of goals and being such a key. But still, there was this uh, problem between him and Guardiola still, the, the tension. Um, and then the end, Guardiola ended up doing this deal that I Already at that time, I was like, what the heck is he doing? Because knowing the Barcelona philosophy, knowing how Guardiola worked, how, how the team was, and knowing how Slatan Ibrahimovic is, even though I can understand what Guardiola tried to do, for me, it's like, this is never going to work in the long run. It's never, never, ever going to work. And But the biggest part as well was just throw some of the toe away the way they did, uh, which, like, even though... He, uh, Guardiola had already told him a year before that I don't want you in my team. It's all worked really, really hard to exactly. prove him wrong. And I think you, uh, I'm a big Guardiola fan, but I think that it totally deserved a lot more respect in the way things were handled than being thrown away that way. I think uh, the Guardiola of now would not have made the same decision. If you saw the way that he handled Yaya Toure at Manchester mm -hmm. City, whose agent had spent years bad-mouthing him, but still, Guardiola, who was a little bit older and a little bit wiser at that time, still figured out, okay, we, we have a use for this guy and we maybe need to just somehow find a way to work together. But hey, uh, Inter Milan fans are happy because another thing that Eto did is he did the double treble, which is absolutely insane. I think he's the only player, he must be the only player yeah, ever to do this. Yeah, he's the only player stand up. Yeah, uh, to win the treble at Barca and win it into the next season. So yeah, one of the greats is finished. The, the one thing I do wonder, it's a little bit of a shame that... that with timing that Mallorca were down in the segunda and then actually even the third tier um, when Eto was toward the end of his career because I reckon there might have been a small choice, uh, chance of him coming back and playing some time there if they were in La Liga. But now, he's, now he's at a stage where he wouldn't have done that, but yeah. maybe a few years ago. But then in, then on the other hand, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's nice to have the memory of him just at his ridiculous best intact in Spanish football. Moving on, I think well, before we wrap up, actually what we're going to do is look at some of the, the listener questions that we got. Um, over the last couple of weeks that we weren't able to to tackle because of time constraints more than anything. Uh, Andrew Miller, I have had your question sitting in front of me for a while now and I promised that I was going to look at it. So here it is. He asked uh, what the most underrated transfer of the La Liga window was for us. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I think we've touched on a couple of these. I would say that Martin Brathwaite mm -hmm. maybe didn't get as much attention as he should and, and maybe a couple at Atleti as well. But anyone that sticks out to you? 
Yes, I, I really like this question because it makes you think a bit. Mm. Um, and I'm going to bring up one that we didn't talk about in our transfer podcast, uh, which I think is is quite interesting one. And it's uh, Matias Vargas to, to Espanyol. So he's an Argentinian player coming from, uh, from Vélez. Um, and he's actually done really well already for Espanyol. So in their Europa League qualifiers, he scored three goals in three matches, starting only two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, uh, I think Espanyol is going to have quite a lot of troubles this season, to, to be yep. completely honest. They, they lost some very, very important players and they already had a quite weak squad that they just did wonders with last season. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit worried about them, but I think that, that Matias Vargas or El Munito, as he's called, <laughs> the little monkey. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, uh, South America. Is, yep, South America. Uh, he's uh, a player they love in Argentina. He yep. actually turned down Boca Juniors uh, for going to Espanol because he wanted to go to Europe. Um, so it's a, he's a young player with a really, really bright future, I'd said, say. And I think one of those players to, to look out a little bit extra for. Because we know that Argentina can produce pretty decent players. Um, and if the Argentinians are super excited about him, I think we should uh, at least uh, keep an eye on, on what he can do. Uh, yeah, and, and then I guess from my point of view, there's a couple that maybe were underrated at the time they were made, but already have proven not to be. So like Lodi to Atleti, I don't think there was a huge fanfare about that, but now everyone's like, oh, hold on, they've got a really good left back in their hands. Um, but maybe one actually that stands out that this that could prove to be a lot better or a lot more significant than people think is Rafinha to Celta. Because yeah. I think that if he can stay fit, he's an excellent player. There's a reason why Valencia, who finished fourth and won the Copa del Rey last year, wanted him. I think that uh, Celta fans don't underrate that signing at no. all. I think uh, the rest <laughs> might I think they can't believe it. No, they, like the Celta fans are like, shit, did we get Rafinha a little bit? Because, I mean, earlier this, during the summer, uh, I was talking to some Celta fans and we were like discussing this, how amazing it was with Denis Suarez and Santimina and the boys coming back. And there was talks about Celta trying to get Nolito back. He's like getting all the, all, the, uh, all the Celta guys back. And, and he was a little bit like, what if we got Rafinha as well? You know, like yep. a joke, because no one, I think, really thought at that time that Celta would be able to to land Rafinha. And he has been, like, most of his career has, has been injuries and he's had mm. a lot of troubles. But I think that, that the best season he's probably had in, on top level was when he played for Celta, when he played yep. regularly. Uh, and they got to see that firsthand. And he was so important for that team that, that was coached by Luis Enrique and was, like, the, the foundation to later became the team where he was and a part of, but that uh, later went to, to the Europa League semifinals. Uh, so they know what he can do. And having him together with Denis Suarez, we haven't seen his first match with Celta yet, but I think uh, if, if he can stay fit from injuries, uh, play regularly as he will be doing if he's fit, uh, it can be such a huge signing for, for Celta in so many ways. Yeah, he's a supreme talent and he's, I really, really hope that he, he stays fit because he's had horrible luck, a lot like his brother. Um, but, you know, there's always that, he's still relatively young and there, there's always that thing in the back of my mind about how when he was a kid, everyone was pretty sure, you know, if you followed Barca's academy and Thiago was getting a lot of attention, but there was always the, the people who really knew who were like, yeah, yeah, you think he's good? Wait until you see Rafinha. Um, and he's not really had a chance to prove that yet. Yeah, I remember uh, there was an interview when Thiago was just getting all the hype when Thiago was like 16, 17, uh, had got his B-team debut and Guardiola took up him and gave him his first team debut and everyone was talking about Thiago. There was this interview on, I think, Barca TV with Massinho and Thiago and they're both just laughing. It's like, you haven't even seen the little one yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So yeah, fingers crossed for him. Um, and then a, another question that we'll tackle quickly. FCB Soul asked, thoughts on Neymar and the Barcelona transfer saga, especially dressing room chemistry with all the rumours? Well, this has been kind of dragged out, but I thought that Barca could have used them against Osasuna, that's for sure. Um, that's one game evidence. But uh, as far as the dressing room chemistry, well, I think Sid Lowe's written about this, actually, and I think it's a good point. These players that Barca were kind of trying to force out the door as a make-weight for him, so Dembele and Rakitic in particular, it has to have impacted them to some degree. I think Rakitic has been around the block a bit more, so maybe he'll be better at just getting on with it and not thinking about it. But for Dembele, I mean, who now in some way they have to back and try to develop, I think it's probably been a not a particularly constructive summer for his future. No, I think uh, the, the Neymar thing has probably has created more problems for Barcelona than it done anything good, especially since it didn't manage to do the actual signing. Exactly. Um, and it's a little bit as well, player you, you already sold off and, and trying to fix the mistake and getting him back. It's just been an entire saga and all the, the media around it and all the focus that has taken from the actual team and the actual players that mm. are there. Uh, that can never be a positive thing, I think. No. All right, so that's everything really, apart from one small piece of business, which is that we need your help for something. Um, this international break has been a little bit different because there was so much to talk about regarding players who are playing in La Liga and Spain will play Norway and Sweden, so we'll of course touch on that in the ones to come. Uh, but in general, we thought we were going to use these periods to do a little bit of history, if you like, a Spanish football history lesson through the eyes of Scandinavians, right? So there haven't been a lot, a lot of Scandinavians playing in, in La Liga, but there is like, if you look at all of the history, we can still point out quite a few of them I'd say so our idea and what we want to do as you said during the international breaks is do special uh, episodes where we instead of talking about the current La Liga players the current teams etc we're going to look back uh, and talk about the Scandies who played in La Liga um, some who made a real big mark some that you all know a lot about but we might go in a little bit more detail uh, on them but then also some players that, that maybe you haven't ever heard of but who actually did some really big things in La Liga back 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 in the day yeah uh, so what we want from you is to to let us know what players you would really like to to listen to I mean my exactly my list is endless but you probably yeah. don't want to just indulge me so like uh, we talked about Zlatan Ibrahimovic was he really a flop at Barca or was he more successful than people maybe realize or Henke Larsson for example I think most people who didn't watch Barca uh, in depth at that time if you mention Henrik Larsson at Barcelona, they talk about the Champions League final in Paris, mm -hmm. but that's kind of it. They don't really have much else to say. And then there's, I mean, there's Michael Laudrup as well, yeah. who wasn't perhaps given as much attention as he should do these days. But then there's there's other ones that are that are maybe less heralded. We mentioned Olaf Melbury a couple of weeks ago. He's mm -hmm. played in Spain twice at two different phases of his career, so there's stuff to talk about there. And then going way back as well into like the the black and white days, if you like. Uh, before color TV, there's Scandinavians in La Liga from then. So yeah, there's there's tons. The the Agnes Simonsson, the only Swede who ever played for for Real Madrid. Henry Carlson, who played for Atletico Madrid, who is th that is an episode that we really need to do because that's going to be really interesting. That's a, a key player for Atletico Madrid, to be honest. During that back in the day, a, a huge player who really only came to my attention because when Atletico were in Stockholm this summer, they they did the nice thing, which I think more clubs should do, which is that they remembered their history and they they were in touch with his family 
and they got a signed shirt from the athletic squad which is pretty cool so yeah that's absolutely what we have to do but that's only what we want so whatever you guys want let us know and we will happily do that yeah and any scandies who played in the league it can be anyone exactly. uh, just point them out to us you know to be as or in spain in general, to be a scrum played for Gymnastic Tarragona is pointing that out. Nastic, the mighty <laughs> Nastic. Uh, all right, so before we get involved in the intricacies of lower league Spanish football, we should probably wrap it up for another week. Uh, that was a pretty easy episode considering it's been an international break. I'm pleasantly surprised yeah. by that one. But yeah, we'll be back next Monday. We'll look back on a huge weekend of fixtures in La Liga. Until then, please, please, please leave us a rating or a like or whatever the review system happens to be on the podcast delivery method of your choice. It's really helpful. It helps us to climb up the rankings and get more exposure and helps us to keep doing more of these. So for now then, I guess I'll say arrivederci. Au revoir. Ooh, French. Been to France. <laughs> I've been to France. The wisdom of Alexandra Jonsson. We'll leave you there. Hey, Bye-bye. <laughs>